Welcome this morning to Aletheia. Appreciate you guys being here this morning. There's a lot of unfamiliar faces to me this morning, so that's always exciting. I want to welcome everyone here this morning. Um, as we uh, just went through um, just a moment ago with our reading, uh, we're in Psalm 139 this morning. We're in Psalm 139 this morning. The title of my message this morning is, Know Me, O Lord. Know Me, O Lord. As I typically do whenever I'm bringing the word to you guys um, in the morning, I love to ask you questions to kind of get us engaged as we look at God's word. And so my first question for you this morning is, out of all the people who know you, who knows you best? Think about that for a moment. Out of all the people who know you, who knows you best? Are you the type of person who likes to be known or are you a person who's more reserved? Why is it that so many people fear being known? As has been quoted frequently in the last couple of uh, days, last couple of weeks uh, from this book from Tim Keller about marriage, I want to give you this quote once again. Tim Keller says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What emotion does being known stir up in you? Is that a comforting thought or is that a distressing thought? When I was at the University of Florida, when I was a student, I was involved in the BCM, um, and I would also attend crew almost every single week. And beginning in my sophomore year, I began to go through a very difficult time um, in my personal life, very difficult time in my church life. Um, there was lots of different things that happened at that time. We experienced uh, the tragic consequences of sin. Uh, we had members pass away during that time. And we endured a lot of disunity at a very high level. It was a very challenging time in my personal life. And the biggest blessing that I had during that time was the fact that there were two people with whom I shared almost everything with. Being known by those two people on such a deep level at that time was massively valuable for me as an individual. I was able to, to tell them everything that I was struggling through. I was able to confess to them my sins and they were able just to listen to all of the things that I was going through and enduring. And what they really showed me was what James says whenever he says that, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And in so many ways, those people were uh, really valuable to me. And they really allowed me to be able to heal as a consequence of all that was going on around me. And so suffice to say, they were invaluable and one of these two people is actually still a very close personal friend. It is so important to be open and vulnerable and transparent. That's essential to human flourishing. But as good as it is to be known by one another, it is much more of a sobering reality to be fully known by God. The idea that God knows all about us is a distressing idea for some people. Some sound mournful as they speak about the omniscience of the Almighty. To them, it's a solemn thing to, that God should be every single place, that he should be everywhere. The words, God sees all, 
is a serious check to the unredeemed sinner. But for God's people, this should be words that never allow us to feel gloom, but rather we should always rejoice in the fact that God sees all that we do. He's always with us. We should be just like David is in this Psalm as he expresses great joy at the fact that his greatest friend is never far away from him. His protector's hand is never removed from him. And the chief shepherd's eye of divine love is always upon him. You see, it is bliss and a foretaste of heaven itself to know that wherever we seek God, he is found. He is never far from any of his children. May he grant us the grace this morning to rejoice in the fact that his presence is constantly around us everywhere we go. Before I begin to look in more detail at Psalm 139, I want you to know that if you are in Christ, every single promise that I'm about to read is for you. Every single promise is a promise that you can hold to yourself. But if you are not a person who um, is in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, then none of these promises are true for you. And my prayer for you this morning is that this will be the day where you would turn from your sin and embrace God, embrace Jesus so that all of these things can be true of you. Because I can uh, assure you of this, that the Lord has you in this place at this time, this morning for a reason. And it is ultimately always so that you will know him better and so that you can be known and loved by God. Read with me verse one of Psalm 139 again. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. My first point this morning is the Lord knows us with perfect knowledge. The Lord knows us with perfect knowledge. He knows us. God knows all that I do and all that I don't do. He is aware every time I sit down to rest and every time I rise up to take action. He knows your most trivial deeds and your most important movements. Before a thought is fully formed in your mind, God knows your thoughts in their entirety. What you think and why you think it, whether for good or for ill, is perfectly understood by our eternal God. Sometimes we don't understand our own thoughts. Sometimes we have a hard time figuring ourselves out, and yet God always understands what we're thinking. Acquainted with all my ways. He is familiar with all that we do. Nothing is concealed from him and nothing is surprising to him. No matter if the path that we walk is one of habit or one of accident, or if we go into the open or in secret, he is fully aware and well acquainted with all of our ways. This knowledge that God has about us and about our ways should fill us with awe so that we sin less. It should fill us with courage so that we fear less. And it should fill us with delight so that we are 
stressed less. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it. Our thoughts are words to God. It is a frequent experience of ourselves to keep things concealed in our minds. And yet nothing is concealed from God. You see, every thought that you have is whispered in God's ear. He hears everything we think. He hem me in behind and before. Like a child in his mother's arms, God encompasses us behind and before. He is compassionate towards us and kind. Put another way, this, this word picture here um, in, in, in Hebrew is of a city whose walls are besieged by an invading army. And one of my, um, one of my favorite periods of, of uh, history in general, I was a history major whenever I was at UF, uh, one of my favorite um, periods is during World War II. And so one of the most intense military blockades during World War II was the siege of Leningrad. This is when Nazi Germany, its military reached the city of Leningrad in 1941 as part of Operation Barabosa. This was a massive surprise attack on the Soviet Union. And instead of engaging in urban warfare, Hitler decided to lay siege and starve the city into submission. The three million inhabitants of the city were caught totally unprepared. Leningrad lacked sufficient supplies for a prolonged standoff. Daily, they were bombarded by the Luftwaffe, and they suffered extremely freezing temperatures. They suffered hunger and even disease. They had a small ration of bread, but resorted to eating anything from shoe leather to wallpaper paste to one another as their condition worsened over time. Despite these horrific conditions, the citizens of Leningrad endured life under siege for 872 days from September 1941 until January 1944. By the time the victory was won and the city was freed by the Red Army, there was an estimated 1 million Soviets, most of whom were civilians, who had perished. This was one of the most brutal sieges in all of world history, not to mention modern history. And so here in our text, when Psalm 139 speaks of God's presence, God's presence is like a siege force. He is in front and behind, he's even above. God's loving presence completely surrounds you at all times and in every circumstance. Everywhere you go, God goes. Everything you do, God does. He is instantly present and at the ready to intervene in every circumstance of your life. He is always with us. David says, you hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is high, I cannot attain it. I love this quote that I'm about to, to read to you. It's a quote by John Piper. Um, as he was preaching through the book of Romans, he got to Romans chapter 11, um, and he got to verses 33 through 36, and he said these words about the knowledge of God. Paul says that God's knowledge is unfathomably deep. He knows all recorded facts, all the facts stored in all the computers and all the books and all the libraries in the world. But vastly more than that, 
He knows all events at the macro level, all that happens on earth and in the atmosphere and in the farthest reaches of space and every galaxy and star and planet and all events at the micro level, all that happens in molecules and atoms and electrons and protons and neurons and quarks. He knows all their movements and every location and every condition of every particle of the universe at every nanosecond of time. And he knows all events that happen in human minds and wills, all volitional and emotional and spiritual events, all thoughts and choices and feelings. And that includes past, present, and future. He knows every event that has ever happened and ever will happen at every level of existence, physical, mental, and volitional. And he knows how all facts and all events of every kind relate to one another and affect one another. When one event happens, he not only sees it, but he sees the eternal chain of events that flow from it and from all the billions of events that are unleashed by every other event. He knows all this without the slightest strain on his mind. This is what it means to be God. His knowledge is high and we can't come close. Man cannot climb up to God's glorious throne. The very lowest step is far higher than any person can grasp. Man cannot attain it. Man could never reach that high without God himself. We are utterly dependent on God for everything. As he sits on his throne with all knowledge, we must realize that we can never extend that high. And so we should cease our attempts to reach up to him and simply humble ourselves before him. God's knowledge is beyond our ability to comprehend and to understand. My second point is this. The Lord is with us with perfect love. Verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. At the opposites and everything in between, God is present. From heaven to hell, from furthest east to furthest west, God is present. And we cannot escape God's spirit to his glory. If I ascend to heaven, Heaven is an immense place filled with an innumerable amount of people and angelic beings. And yet, you will not escape God's eye there. No matter what corner you're in or what crowd you're among, God will be there. All of the inhabitants of this world lie as open to his scrutiny as the inhabitants of our world are. In heaven, God always sees you. And he will know you and set his love upon you. If I make my bed and shield, this can be understood a few different ways. It can be understood as simply the grave, 
or the state of being dead or hell. Either way, all contexts are equally vivid. So let's look at all three of those. Let's talk about the grave first. If we were to go into the depths of the earth, the very center of the earth, even there, God is present. We could dig as deep as humanly possible and never escape his presence. The deepest that we have ever drilled into the earth was seven and a half miles below the surface, creating a hole about nine inches in diameter. It took us 20 years to reach that depth. And yet, even there, if you could go there, you would not be able to hide from God. The grave. Let's talk about the state of being dead. Once we die, no living person can see us or find us. Yet God's eye will see us, even after life itself has ceased. Hell. No place could be a more uncomfortable place to make a bed in than hell, as David says here in our psalm. There is no comfort at all in hell. Jesus said these words, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Even in hell, God is present. Hell is not the absence of God as people mistakenly believe. No, rather to be in hell is to experience the full presence of God and his justice and his power to punish. But no person who has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ could ever go to hell. And so David is using all of his inspired creativity to tell us that no matter where we go, as God's people in heaven and beyond the grave, even there, God is present. If I take the wings of the morning, God is swifter than the sunbeam. Light moves at 186,000 miles per second, and God wins every foot race with light. If you, Christian, were to move that fast, even then, God will be able to catch up to you and even surpass you. Even darkness is not dark to you. We are continually under the inspection of God. We've seen bees in a glass hive and have watched all of their movements. We put ants in a clear ant farm and have observed all of their operations. We even have powerful microscopes which allow us to examine every organ of an insect. And in like manner, God watches and examines you. Even in perfect pitch black darkness, God can see you. Nothing is hidden from him. Everything you do, he sees. C.S. Lewis said these words, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. 
He walks everywhere incognito. Darkness is not dark to God. He sees in darkness as clearly as we see in the daytime. This is a great reminder of something that we often ignore, that nothing can be hidden from God. His watchful eye, believer, is always on you. And again, as I said at the beginning, this is a comforting truth to the psalmist. And this should be a comfort to us as well. When we feel most alone and are most afraid in the darkest places that we can go to, both physically and spiritually, God is with us. He is with us with perfect love. Point number three, the Lord created us with perfect grace. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Wonderfully created. Let's talk for a second about uh, abortion and eugenics. Let's talk about abortion first. We immediately see a very dark place described in verse 13, which is the womb. And this illustrates the exceedingly dark place that David mentioned in verses 11 and 12. So many rightfully use this text as a proof text against abortion. As Even as I was in my, my preparations, almost the majority of the sermons that I, I listened to about this particular text were about abortion. Even in the womb, as an embryo, we have been known by God and knit together by God. Your life doesn't begin before God at your birth. No, to him, you existed long before your birthday. Let's talk about eugenics. Just as important are those who have already been born. Every person bears the image of God. And as such, all life is precious to God. Genocide is a manifestation of human evil. From the Holocaust to the American slave trade, it's all evil in God's sight. Every life is precious to God from conception to natural death. Let's give two practical applications really quickly. From the moment of your conception, each and every day was planned by our Heavenly Father in love. You are more than the byproduct of some urges that your parents had. You have intrinsic worth and value to God. Your unique creative diversity is God-ordained. There could be someone here who maybe has been affected by the tragedy of abortion. And I want you to know that, that in Christ, there is free and full forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. He brings healing to the heart and to the soul. We have been created. 
We are rightly astonished by these amazing bodies that we live in. When you consider the composition of every part and the amazing harmony of all of it, it's a bit overwhelming when we think about our bodies. Those secret organs that I cannot see, which are working all the time to sustain my life, are amazing. Before one of God's children were born, he was exercising wonderful watch care over our lives to sustain us. And when you consider the beautiful arrangement of our skin and our nerves, our veins and our muscles and our bones, it is difficult not to agree with the psalmist that we have been wonderfully and fearfully made. Wonderful are your works. So many desire to to go to the depth of the ocean to see wonderful things or into the vastness of space to see awe-inspiring works, but consider looking within. You don't have to go far to see God's marvelous works. Look within, and your body is a masterpiece of God's wisdom and his skill. Your heart circulates your blood through your body almost a thousand times each day. You lose about eight pounds of skin cells every single year. Your blood has the same amount of salt in it as the ocean does. Stomach acid can dissolve metal. If laid end to end, all of your blood vessels would encircle the earth four times. Bodies give off a tiny amount of light that's too weak for the eye to see. You're literally a flashlight. On a genetic level, Human beings are 99% identical. Every human being, in every culture, every place on this planet. And the largest muscle in your body is the muscle that you're sitting on right now. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden. David uses poetic language here harking us back to Genesis where God made Adam from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature, Genesis 2-7. He says that God wove him in the depths of the earth in his mother's womb. This is one example of the darkness that God can see, a place where God is working. The word woven here in Hebrew, is translated to mean um, embroidered in other places in the Old Testament. This same word here describes the needlework of the tabernacle and the clothing that's described in Exodus. God, in the womb of our mother, weaves us together. From earth we were created, and to dusk we shall return. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. If you're anything like me, despite knowing that God created us, we can be a little bit discontent. I've always wanted to be able to dribble a basketball um, or to be able to throw a football accurately. I've never been able to jump very high or throw or catch a baseball. I've failed every single time I've tried to play ultimate frisbee. And probably every other time I play volleyball, I can give a decent serve. In my ideal world, I would be 6'5", about 240 pounds, and run without ever getting tired. None of that is even close to being true right now. I'm barely 5'8", 
and I can't run a quarter mile without being completely winded because of my asthma and my sensitivity to allergies. And yet, God doesn't make mistakes. He made you exactly the way he wants you. And he mapped out your life day by day, moment by moment. Every one of your days has been written in his book. Let me give you another practical application. He made you exactly as you are for his purposes and his glory. You may very well have been an accident, but you are not a mistake. God has a beautiful design for your life. He planned our beginning. He planned our end and everything in between. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3-14, God in his wonderful knowledge knew us before we knew ourselves or anyone else knew us. The creation by God of our body, mind, and soul was planned long before we came into physical existence. Number four, the Lord ruminates on us with perfect examination. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and am still with you. God's thoughts toward us are innumerable. Psalm 40, verse 5. O Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. If you could count every grain of sand, every grain of sand on every shore in the entire world, that number would pale in comparison to the number of thoughts that God has about you. God, in his compassion, always has his heart of love set on his sheep of his pasture. How vast is the sum of God's thoughts towards us. So many people would think it to be a, a great honor to meet their former, um, their, their, their favorite president. Um, it would be such a great honor for that president to, to look kindly upon them, uh, to acknowledge their existence, let alone just to know them personally. That'd be a tremendous honor. What an honor it would be for me to have Abraham Lincoln counted as a friend of mine. I would never not tell that story. But the God that we serve says that kings and princes are like grasshoppers. He says that in Nahum 3, 17. And unlike the highest earthly leaders, God thinks of us often. We are always in his thoughts. Isaiah tells us in the 49th chapter of his book that God says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We are continually before God. We are precious to God. He never forgets us. I awake and I'm still with you. The idea here 
is that we can spend so long counting God's thoughts towards us that we will fall asleep. And then when we awakened, we will once again be with God. Each morning, we should remember God. It will greatly help us to remember and to reflect upon God every day when we wake up. We are always under his eye and his care and are safe under his protection. It would radically transform our lives if your first waking thoughts were of the Lord. And we immediately set him before us to begin our day. This draws to my remembrance a dear brother and fellow saint whose wife has been placed in a nursing home for her care and her betterment. The man and his wife are both upwards of 70 now. And during these COVID-19 times, no visitors can come inside the nursing home. And so each day, after more than 40 years of marriage, the husband stands outside the large window of his wife's room and he calls her on the phone and sees her and speaks with her. To see the smile on their faces is pure exhilaration. It does them both good just to know that the other is there. I would love to show you a picture um, of these two people on Facebook after service is over if you want to see them. Um, it's, it's one of the cutest things I've ever seen. We all like to be thought of. We love to be sweetly remembered by those that we know and love. What a privilege it is to be thought of by God and love. Just thinking of God brings us near to God. When we reflect on him, we are brought immediately into his presence. It is so difficult to describe what it's like to experience being in God's presence. It's truly indescribable. I'm sure that many of you know what it's like to be in God's presence and to experience his nearness. There's nothing like it. There have been times where in prayer, we feel like we're at the very feet of Jesus, just like Mary was in Luke 10, 31, Luke 10, 39. Or there have been times in Bible study where we're studying and we seem to have him just sitting in the room with us. Or maybe for you, there have been times where you've been speaking with a friend and you felt like the king was standing in the midst of you. When we awake, he is always with us. Point number five. The Lord desires us to hate evil with perfect hatred. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. God's enemies are not hidden. Just as God sees his children perfectly and knows them fully, so too does he see and know the unbelieving and the hateful, the boastful, those who are the enemies of his glory. He sees every one of their wicked acts and he impeccably reads their evil thoughts. He won't spare them because he knows all of their deeds. Every wicked act takes place in the presence of the divine. 
He doesn't need witnesses to testify. He is not in want of a jury. He is all in one. Abraham tells us, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 18, verse 25. He knows and he is perfect in judgment. It is unbearable for a man to endure hearing harsh words spoken about his wife or his children. It is detestable for a woman to hear an insult against her close friend or loved one. So too is it unbearable for a child of God to hear insults levied against the Almighty. Such a God as we know is to be praised and never cursed. Such a God as we know is deserving of eternal praises forever. God is so good and so full of love. David, in like manner as we should be, cries out for the justice of God to be executed on all those who despise him. God's enemies are our enemies. Charles Spurgeon has said this, we are bound to love our own enemies, but not God's enemies, since they are haters of all that is good and all that is true and the essentially good one himself. We love them as our fellow beings, but we hate them as haters of God. We are to despise those who despise God. Now, you may be thinking, man, this sounds like very contradictory to some like New Testament things that I know. This is not an excuse not to love our neighbor. That is still a command. But we hold this tension and with this reality that we are to love all people and yet hate those who hate God. Do you ever struggle with tensions in your life? Maybe there's a tension between disciplining a child and loving him. At times it seems contradictory to do both, but true love will bring about correction for the health and safety of that child. And there are so many tensions that we endure in life. This is just one of them. We are to simultaneously love and hate. And so the natural question in your mind should be, how can we do this? Well, Paul helps us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, where he says these words, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is how you love your enemies and despise those who despise God. Stand away from them and let God execute judgment. Jesus has this perfect sight and knowledge that we're talking about here, about God. 
You see, one of the amazing things about our Savior is that he was not just the man, but the Son of God in the flesh. John 1 verse 43 says these words. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Nathaniel made a very bigoted statement about Jesus. He questioned whether anything good can come out of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But notice what Jesus does with his enemies. He doesn't just punish them, but he delights to save them and to transform them. We see Jesus, when he meets Nathaniel for the very first time, he lets him know that he was God. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. When Nathaniel was alone there with God, thinking his secret thoughts before the God of the universe, Jesus was listening to every word. Jesus knew just what to say to Nathaniel to reveal to him that he was God. He didn't repay evil for evil, but rather he brought Nathaniel into the fold as a follower of himself. If you are here this morning and you don't know God the way that we are describing, if you've never trusted in Christ to save you from your sin, and you've never turned from those sins in a heartfelt reliance on Jesus who died to put all of our wicked, bloodthirsty, malicious hatred towards him to death, if you have never trusted in him, then I plead with you this morning to ask him to make you new. We should despise God's enemies, but on this side of eternity, God's enemies can become his friends. Point number five. Sorry, point, point number six. The Lord leads us with perfect permanence. The Lord leads us with perfect permanence. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. The psalmist begins with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me as a declaration. And he ends the psalm with, search me, O God, and know my heart as a prayer. He knows God has searched him and he asked for him to do it again. 
and to keep on doing it. To never take the floodlight off of his life. Would that our hearts would agree with his, with David's. How sweet it is to be thought of by God. To be the perpetual object of God's thoughts is a precious truth. Try me and know my thoughts. I cannot hide my thoughts from God and would not if I could. God is so good. See if there be any grievous way in me. We ask God to find all of our sin and wash it away. Find all of the spots and make them clean. Prune every wild part of me so that I can bear fruit to his glory. Lead me in the way everlasting. I want to end with this Spurgeon quote. O Lord, my God, lead me in the way everlasting. I need it. Thou hast made me to teach others, and my example influences many. Lead me in the way everlasting. And thy servants who gather around me, my beloved deacons and elders, whose example also will be potent for good if they be good, and for evil if they be evil. Lord, hear them as they say, lead us in the way everlasting. And the members of the church, the many hundreds, yea, the thousands who are associated in church fellowship here, who eat of thy bread and drink of thy cup, oh, hear them such as they are now present, who shall now cry unto thee, lead me in the way everlasting. Hear every brother in dilemma and difficulty, every sister in duty and danger, Every heart that is weary, every soul that is sick, lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord, hear the unconverted sinner as he breathes this desire towards thy throne of grace. Is there here one that has left the paths of virtue and of honesty? And does his lip tremblingly say, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, hear his supplication. Lord, hear it for Jesus' sake. Wheresoever there standeth or sitteth in his tabernacle, one old or young, rich or poor, learned or illiterate, moral or immoral, if there be such a one here who in his heart saith, Father, forgive me and lead me in the way everlasting. O oh, do thou answer thy prayer speedily for thy dear son's sake. And now once more, for Jesus' sake, we do each of us beseech thee, lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.